Uh, Father, your word is truth, and it's the food that feeds our souls. It's what you use to communicate more of yourself to us. And so as we spend some time in it this morning, uh, we submit ourselves, heart and soul to you. We ask your spirit to speak the things to each of us that you mean to. And ask, Lord, that you encourage and exhort us as a church in the ways you mean to as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Share briefly a story with you of my youth. When I was growing up, there were most things I was clueless about, the future, what I wanted to do, what was important, etc. One of the things I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to live in the Rocky Mountains. That was the extent of my dreams. And God gave me the uh, opportunity to do that for about two years. I lived in northwest Montana in God's country, big sky country, right up in the northwest corner of the state, if you know it right, just south of the Canadian border and just west of Glacier National Park. It truly is a remarkable part of the, of the country and the world. And uh, for a couple of years, I lived and worked up there, and it was great. Um, in my inspection business, uh, sometimes I talk to people about electrical issues, and I call electricity fire under control. And so when a client asks me, how do you do that, and it's electrical repair, my response is, if you have to ask, don't do it. And if I had taken my own advice in the arena of auto mechanics, Phil, I wouldn't have this story. But I had a beat-up old Dodge pickup, and the tie rod ends were worn notably so that the front end was real loose, Gary, and it was just sort of shimmy and shake. And so I got some good advice from some guys who knew more than I did about auto mechanicing, and I went to the parts store. I came back to the cabin up, up on the mountain, and I went to change these parts out. Seems simple enough. So I get the old parts out, put the new parts in, start on one side, and it doesn't fit. And so I've got to drive back down the mountain to trade that out for the right part. Well, I've boogered up the piece, the tie rod in, and uh, I can't get the nut back on it and the cotter pin. Do you guys know where this is going? Can't get it back on. Right. So I use baling wire. And I, you know, I stick it back up in there. I get it fixed the best I can. Drive back into town, get the new part. And this is winter, guys, and it's a winter just like this one here. It's cold. I think this was in January. And we had a lot of fresh snow on the ground. So I'm heading up Pinkham Creek Road. This is in the mountains, by the way. And Pinkham Creek Road, when you came out of the little town of Eureka, you went left at a fork to go up to where I lived, or you went right to go down to the reservoir, and right at that split, there was a very deep, very large ravine. And so I'm tootling away, going back, minding my own business. And, you know, lo and behold, what happens? Uh, that tie rod end falls out of the right tire. And so I'm zooming up Pinkham Creek Road. And my right tire now has nothing to hold it in line with the other one. It's disconnected. And in that deep snow, it just turned to the right. And so... My truck is now going off the side of the mountain down this ravine. And if you guys, you know, in your mind that, that like hours can go by in just seconds or milliseconds. And the movie that went through my mind uh, was my truck with me in it rolling over and over and over and exploding in a ball of flames at the bottom of this ravine. They're laughing. <laughs> This was the end of my life. I'm 21 years old, and I, I knew I was, I was dead. I knew I was dying. I knew that I was moments away. I was a new Christian, thank, thank the Lord. 
knew where I was going, but I was moments away from a fiery death, and I knew it. My tr- I could not do anything to control my truck. I was going over the side of the mountain, and I knew it. And in my desperation, no ability to control anything that was going on, I yelled out. I didn't think about it. It was no lengthy prayer. I just yelled out, Jesus, save me. And uh, he did. And you know, as many times as I'd been up that road, I went up this road every day. And I'd never seen that there was, an, there was the remnants of an old logging track. So that when my truck went off the edge of that mountain, I actually landed about 10 feet down on what was left of this little flat space. And that was it. I was good to go. I went out and hauled my truck out the next day with my brother's help. But uh, a situation which you know life has suddenly passed out of your control. You have no ability to intervene and, and either really save your own life or no ability to control the circumstances that you find yourself in. What do you do? You know, do you despair? Do we pray? What does that look like? The passage we're in this morning in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, Paul went through a similar experience, maybe not a beat up old truck on a mountain road, but a situation in which he realized all of a sudden matters were out of his control. And he had no ability to not only save his own life, but keep things going in the way he thought they were meant to. 2 Corinthians, if you have your study sheet, the text you've got there is out of the New American Standard. I'll read there now. Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he continues, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. And when we read Asia today, this is not the Far East, this is the modern-day country of Turkey. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. First, Paul says that there's this element of despair and sudden hopelessness. And guys, the truth is we're not entirely sure what this was. I mean, the event in his life that he's specifically referring to, we're not entirely sure what he's talking about. If the event is recorded in the Scriptures, it's most likely Acts 19, verses 23 through 41. And this is the riot in Ephesus. And you know, frankly, when you read, Paul, uh, when you read Luke in Acts, the human author of Acts, Luke is a master of understatement. So Luke talks about this riot and he says, there was no small disturbance. That means it was a really big disturbance. So I'm thinking of, literally, I'm thinking of the riots in Egypt today would have looked something like this riot in the city of Ephesus. And Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, they are grabbed by the scruff of the neck and they are tooled off to the theater to be accused and who knows what and Paul's going to go too but his friends are afraid for his life and so they restrain him and if this is recorded in the scriptures we're assuming this is probably the scenario he's referring to in which suddenly things had gone out of control he despaired of life he thought this is it my life is over I'm toast I'm history it all ends here 
And even if it was some other event, we're not sure, but we know this. He despaired of life and he felt like there's a death sentence on me. I'm a dead man. The end of my life is here. Life had spun out of control. And imagine you're him for just a second. He's doing God's work. He's where God wants him to be. He's fulfilling this. He understands it's God's will for his life. And suddenly the rug is being pulled out from under him. And you know, if I was there, I'd be thinking something like, Lord, this isn't fair. Or Lord, what happened? There's trouble. I'm doing your will and suddenly there's trouble. If you and I were there, what, what would we think? What would we do? All our dreams, all our plans for God's glory, for God's kingdom. And now this, what's going on? What gives? Well, if you look in verse 9b, out of this despair, Paul says we despaired of life. We gave up hope that we could even maintain our own physical presence on the earth. In verse 9 he says this, We had the sentence of death within ourselves for a purpose or for a reason, so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. So Paul says there was a reason that God caused or allowed this sudden sense of despair that our life is over. And it was so that we, Paul and his friends, would not trust in themselves, but in God who raises the dead. Whether Paul knew that in the moment or not, I suspect he didn't. But looking back, he knew that God was in the details because he wanted to do something in Paul and not just through Paul. And feeling like suddenly life's out of control, I'm headed to my death, it suddenly crystallizes things for Paul again. And it fixes his eyes back on Christ and on the Lord in a way they apparently had not been before. And you've got to remember, I mean, this is Paul the great apostle. And when you read the accounts in Acts, we know he suffers a lot of hardship and a lot of persecution for sure. But it's his third missionary trip, and he really has had astounding success wherever he's gone. Lots of people have come to Christ. There's churches established in all these cities. And maybe, just maybe, Paul has begun to think too highly of his own abilities. The text doesn't say this specifically, but we infer. Why did God need to get his attention like this? Why is God bringing about, causing, or allowing this scene where Paul says, I felt like I was at the end of my life? He says here the purpose is that so we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. So God uses this as an opportunity to get Paul's attention and tell him in a way maybe he hadn't been thinking of otherwise, Paul, this isn't so much about you, it's about me. It's not about your power, it's about my power. And in this letter in 2 Corinthians, you've got these themes that are contrasted and compared throughout this letter over and over again. And it's this thought of uh, power versus weakness and death versus life. So that when you get into chapter 3, Paul talks about an old covenant and death. And he talks about a new covenant and life. And in chapter 4, he talks about uh, the fact that our humanity is like a clay pot. It's a cracked jar that God puts this glorious life into so that there's life in death, if you will. And Paul says there it's so that God would be glorified, not us. He says more of the same in chapter 4. If you go to chapter 12, if anyone knows anything about Paul's sufferings, it's probably 
from that chapter where he says he prays to God about this thorn in the flesh, remove this thing from me. And God says there, no, Paul, because my power is perfected in weakness. And so you see this theme about death and life and God's power versus human weakness throughout this letter. And Paul's reminded it's not all about me. God's getting my attention again and saying, Paul, it's about me and my power, not what you bring to the plate. You know, ultimately, uh, none of us has the ability to even maintain our own life physically, physically on the earth, much less the plans that we come up with for our future. Even if we think they're godly plans and this is what we think God wants, we don't have the ability to sustain our own life physically, much less carry out the plans we think, maybe rightly, are God's plans for us to be involved with in our time here on the earth. And God not only is the one who sustains our life, He's the one who determines the day of our birth and the day of our death, but He's also the one who accomplishes His work through us. You know, think about this for a minute. If you're a parent, if you're married, if you have a friend, if you're in any relationship with anyone else, you know this. One human being, you cannot change the heart of another human being. Not one of us has the power to change another person's heart. And you know, no matter how convincing you may be in sharing Christ with someone else, not one of us has the power to bring about a new birth in another person. Not one. That in God's economy, we not only do not have the power to maintain or sustain our own life, but we have absolutely no power to carry about God's will. God's work is accomplished by His Spirit. And He uses people like us to do that. But he doesn't, want to get us, he doesn't want us to have a mistaken notion about that. It's not us that's doing it. God doesn't need us to do anything. He chooses to use us. He sustains our life and He works in us. And then He works through us to accomplish His ends. But guys, He doesn't have to use us. And when we're getting wrapped up and we think that my life, my bills, my house payment sharing the Lord, discipleship, etc. Whatever we're thinking about going on in life, it's all about what I bring to the plate. We're wrong. I think we're right where Paul was. And God will allow things to come in and sift our thoughts and sift our life and bring us back to that point where we're looking back at God and saying, Lord, we, we get it. It's not about what I bring to this. It's about you. My life is in your hand. I think it's Psalm 32. David says, my times are in your hand. I write that on my calendar. My times are in your hand, Lord. God sustains our life physically, but He's also the one who works in us first, and then He works through us to others. But at the beginning and the end of this whole process, it's all about God and His power. It's not about what we're bringing to the plate. And so God in Paul's life, He uses the despair of death he uses this sense Paul has that I am at the end of my life right now to refocus Paul's vision on him. To refocus Paul's eyes on God and say, Lord, I trust you. It's about you. It's about your power. It's not about me. Three times in verse 10, Paul says this, God delivered us from the past. God will deliver us. And we assume he's thinking of anything that's coming around the pike here short term. And then he says a third time, 
and God will yet deliver us. And the assumption here is probably thinking ultimately, spiritually, into his presence from the ultimate power of death, death itself, not physical death, but spiritual death. God is the one who delivers. Delivered past, is delivering, and will deliver. You know, it's thought that the epistle to the Romans was written from Corinth, and it would have been right after these events, just shortly after these events. And I think maybe with some of these same thoughts in his mind, Paul wrote in Romans 8, in verse 11 he said, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, speaking to Christians there, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul says the life even in your bodies is from God's Spirit. God's Spirit is the one who's giving you life. Later in verses 36 and 37, and this really sounds uh, contradictory. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament here. He says, Just as it is written, for your sake, speaking to God, for your sake, Lord, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Does that sound oxymoronic or what? Paul says we're like sheep that are being slaughtered. We die. We're being put to death, and yet, he says, we overwhelmingly conquer because at the end of the day, death is not the ultimate loss. Physical death, spiritual death is. And that's why Paul refers to God here as the God of the resurrection because the ultimate loss or weakness is death, spiritual death, and the ultimate power is resurrection from the dead. And you see those contrasted here. It's about God's resurrection life being at work in us. And Paul says as a Christian, God's Spirit is in you to give life. And even if you die, you overwhelmingly conquer. In what other arena can you say that? That for the Christian, death is victory because we're ushered into Christ's presence. That we don't lose ultimately in our physical death. We're simply ushered into Christ's presence. That's victory. That's a win. So when Paul despairs of life, it's to gain a greater sense of who God is and His power and His work in Paul and then through Paul. But it's not all about what Paul can accomplish. So there's a silver lining. I've despair. We felt like we were dead men under a death sentence, and that helped us. We refocused our eyes on God. We trusted in Him again in a way that we hadn't before. And Paul doesn't stop there. He, he continues. He proceeds. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. When Paul is reoriented, Nicholas, when he's got his bearings again and his eyes are back on God, it says in, in verse 9, we trust in God. That's faith. Trust in God in a new, maybe deeper way. Verse 10 says, God is our hope. And then in verse 11, he says, you are helping us through your prayers. So having come to the brink of the end of his life, Paul says when we got back up on our feet, emotionally or spiritually, we proceeded in faith, hope, and prayer. Faith, hope, and prayer. Back to Romans just very briefly. Paul said in Romans 1.17, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. On one hand, that means that when we, by faith, 
and trust ourselves into Jesus' care, we gain spiritual life. There's a new birth. But beyond that, it means that those who have come to Christ in faith live a life that's exemplified or defined by faith, by trusting God. Paul says we don't trust ourselves anymore. We've renewed our trust, our confidence in God Himself. That's the life of faith. And as Christians, we are called to live a life every day and every moment of actively trusting in God, exercising faith in God's person, in His promises, in His goodness. And Paul says when we got up again, got to our feet out of this despair of death, we trusted in God again in some new and deeper way. And you know, one of the benefits of crises for us should be that we know God more than we knew Him before. And that our trust in God is deeper than it was before the affliction came or the trial or the suffering. Otherwise, Christians can come through trials and sufferings that just leave us hardened or just leave us despairing. But in God's hands, those things are meant to fix our eyes again on Him in a newer, deeper way, a deeper appreciation for who He is and His interaction on our behalf. So Paul gets up with faith or trust in God. He also says that we fixed our hope on God who raises the dead. And you know when we use the term hope, most of the time we're talking about an uncertainty. We have a desire for the future that may or may not occur, but in the language of the Scriptures, hope is a fixed certainty. It simply hasn't occurred. So Paul says we have our fixed hope on God who raises the dead. There are certain things that we know absolutely are going to be accomplished because God is in them. And Paul talks about this again when he writes to Timothy, his young protege, in his first letter to him in verse 10 of chapter 4. He says there, similar thing, we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. When we look at the future, our hope is fixed, not on our dreams, not on what we can bring about. Our future hope is God and His promises. We know they're absolutely dependable. We have fixed our hope on God who's our Savior. And in the last letter Paul writes, 2 Timothy, last letter he writes on the earth, last words are important. In chapter 4, verse 18 there, he says, very end of his life, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. Now think about this for just a second. This is the end of Paul's life. How does his life end? The Romans remove his head under Emperor Nero. And yet here you have Paul, not long before he is beheaded, a man under a death sentence, writing that God will rescue me from every evil deed. And you ask, you know, when he's beheaded, did God rescue him from that evil deed? He died. The Romans ended his life. Was he rescued from this evil deed? But in Paul's view, the issue wasn't that his physical life was maintained. Guys, all of us are going to die. Unless the Lord returns first and calls us home, all of us in this room are going to die. It's just a matter of when. It's how soon. It's not if. Paul was going to die too. So it wasn't a question of if. The bigger question for Paul was how. What was his state? Where was his head at when this thing occurred? And he said... 
that when the Romans took his head, it would usher him in to the presence of God. And he says God would bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom. And he did. And you know in Philippians 1, Paul had said earlier in his life, uh, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better than living life on this earth. But I think God wants me to do some more on this earth, so I think I'll be around for a while. But Paul didn't lose here when he lost his head. When that death sentence was finally carried out, he didn't lose, he won. He overwhelmingly conquered because he was ushered safely into the place which is life itself, which is God's presence. So he talks about deliverance, but it's not always that we're delivered from the trouble that we're faced with. Sometimes God delivers us through the trouble, but the trouble's still there, and, and sometimes the trouble's the end of our life. It's death, it's physical death. But the upside of that is physical death for us is still a victory. It's a win because we're ushered into Christ's presence. And then last, on prayer, he said in verse 11, he said, you're joining in helping us through your prayers. Paul said to the Corinthians that still were his advocates in this city that had generally opposed and rejected him, he said, you guys are helping us when you pray. He understood that their prayers on his behalf were affecting his experience there in Asia. 1 Peter 3 verse 12 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. I think oftentimes we pray with absolutely no expectation that God's going to do anything about it. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One is, a lot of times we just know we're supposed to pray. And so it's perfunctory. And, and we sort of go through the motions. We're supposed to pray, we'll pray, we'll, we'll throw it up there. Uh, and you know too, sometimes... Um, because we pray about a lot of things, and oftentimes God doesn't answer those prayers the way we request, we, we sort of come to grips with the fact that, you know, maybe more often than not, the things I specifically prayed for don't get answered the way I've asked. And so we tend to hedge, or we pray, tend to pray minimally, or uh, something along that line. But, but here, Paul said, I know that your prayers will actually be part of God's help for my life. And there's not a trick to this, and it's not faithless to say, Lord, here's our prayer, here's our request, and we're not necessarily sure what your will is, and so we submit that to your goodwill. You know, as Jesus did in the garden, this is what I'd like, but your will be done at the end of the day. So Paul was counting on God being at work because they were praying. And when we pray for the things God cares about, God enters into those prayers and Paul says, I'm going to be helped because you guys are praying. So it didn't mean Paul stopped doing everything else. He was still doing the work he knew he was supposed to do. But all of that was being done with a newfound sense of trust in God, hope, an expectation for the future, and also a dependence on God in prayer. Living under a death sentence was a great thing for Paul. And living under death sentence for you and I is a great thing too. We come to the end of ourselves, we trust God in a new way, and we fix our hope on Him. I want to close with a story out of the Old Testament. Uh, it's an outstanding story. If you get a chance to read it later, you can find it in 2 Kings 18 and 19, 
or Second Chronicles 32, but this is the story of Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of the kings of Judah, and Hezekiah is truly one of the, the outstanding figures in all the Bible. Uh, kings and Chronicles can be a little uh, tough to get through because it's hard to keep track of kings in Israel in the north, kings in Judah in the south, and the way they overlap, and who's on first, etc. But there's a lot of great stories. And when you get to the story of Hezekiah, he was one of the kings in the southern kingdom. And the kings in the southern kingdom were all compared to the first king, David. And so it'll say, uh, they did this like their father David or they didn't do that. But you know, when we get to good king Hezekiah, it says there was no king like him before and there was no king like him afterwards. Hezekiah was absolutely unique in the kings, the list of kings in Judah. And he had inherited a kingdom in disarray and totally given over to idolatry. And he's 25 years old when he gains the throne. This is a young guy. And in his first year, he begins cleansing all the kingdom of Judah of all the idolatry. And the temple itself had been closed, closed up, and it was filled with debris. And Hezekiah's second order of business is he tells the priest, you guys got to go in, you got to cleanse the temple. You got to get the temple service going again. They, They cleanse the temple, they restore the temple, they rebuild it its damaged areas. They reinstitute the priesthood. He tells the people, you guys got to start giving again to the temple. And the temple's rebuilt through those offerings and the priesthood is reinstituted. Israel had not celebrated the Passover in who knows how long. Hezekiah reinstituted the celebration of the Passover and invited anyone from the kingdom uh, north in Israel or south in Judah to come and remember the Lord again in faithfulness, in covenant faithfulness by restoring the Passover. This guy is doing everything right. His heart's in the right place. God is blessing him in all kinds of great ways. And out of nowhere comes trouble. And, you know, I'm thinking if I'm Hezekiah, Lord, what did I do wrong? I'm I'm doing my best, you know, and and here comes this. And and trouble is in the name of the way of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now, in Hezekiah's sixth year, and he reigns 29 years, in his sixth year... The king, sorry, I'm going to forget one of their names, and Sargon from Assyria, they come in and they attack Israel, the northern kingdom, 722 B.C. And Israel's bigger than Judah, stronger, got more wealth, they're mightier, and Assyria wipes them off the face of the, the map, literally, because they deport them. 722 is a key historical date in the, in the history of Israel because the northern kingdom is gone. And that's on his outskirts, on Hezekiah's outskirts. That's in his sixth year of reign. Later in his reign, the next king, Sennacherib, comes in with his huge army. And they overrun all of the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah and the folks who have sought refuge in Jerusalem, they're like birds in a cage. And we know this because that's what Sennacherib wrote. Because his records, his annals were found in Nineveh. And he said, I went into Israel, and the king of Judah, by name Hezekiah, he said, I trapped like a bird in a cage. He doesn't say he overcame the city, though. So here's good king Hezekiah going along, and all of a sudden, he's doing everything God wants him to, and all of a sudden, there's despair, and there's a death sentence, because they are hemmed in, in the city of Jerusalem, by a huge army, and there is no hope. They have no power to engage this enemy. They have no hope of defeating them. And in a siege, 
In fact, Sennacherib has his emissaries go to the walls of the city and call out. This was a good tactic. Call out and say, it's going to be so bad you're going to eat your own feces and drink your own urine because I'm going to keep you shut up. And then I'm going to come in and and take you. And you can imagine the kind of hopelessness and despair. And so here's good King Hezekiah, despaired of life, everybody in the city. What are we going to do? And this is what Hezekiah told the people. He said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And King Sennacherib has one last thing. He sends a letter to Hezekiah. And it says, buddy, you can't escape. I've done this to everybody else. I'm going to come and get you next. And Hezekiah takes that letter and he goes into the temple of the Lord and he spreads it out. And he basically says, Lord, everything this guy says is true. They've wiped out every nation, every city, because the gods of those places were no gods at all. But you're the true God and we entrust ourselves to you. And in verse, let's see, 20, it says, King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet prayed about this. They cried out to heaven. They prayed. They trusted. They cast themselves on God and His mercy. And they prayed. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. He returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. King Hezekiah, just like Paul, he's doing exactly God's work and God's will. And suddenly there's a sentence of death, trouble out of nowhere, and no ability to deal with it on any of the resources he had. And they entrust themselves to God's care. They fix their hope on Him, and they pray. And God miraculously enters in, and He delivers the city. Great, one of the, truly one of the great stories of deliverance in all the Bible. But the same, the same dynamics... We despaired. We have no resources to take care of this. We can't save our own life and we can't maintain what we thought was God's will. We're at an end of ourselves. Guys, you know, sometimes we in in this room, we're going to be faced with physical death, with issues that have to do with physical death, just like Paul did, where we have that sense of, Lord, my life is over. This is out of my control. And you know, short of that, all of us, are going to face situations in which financially we don't have the resources to meet the needs in our own life. Or in the relationships we're in, we're alienated from someone, they're alienated from us, we have no ability to to fix or mend those broken relationships. You know, whatever, all of us are going to face these issues in life in which we do not have the power to change the events or to save ourselves or to save someone else that we know and care about and you know the beauty of that to live under this death sentence to have this kind of despair is that it fixes our hope again on God who has the power to raise the dead and for Paul that's key if God can raise the dead then he can do anything I need him to in my life or yours and I'm just struck again because 
We're an affluent culture, even in a bad economy. You know, we've got lots of resources. But all of us come to times and places in which whatever the resources we thought we had, they're not going to be adequate for the challenges God allows to come into our life. And when we're thinking of Paul in Corinthians or we're thinking of Hezekiah, to trust God again. To say, Lord, we don't trust ourselves. I trust you. Lord, you are my hope. Whether it's in death or in life, whether it's in trouble or good times, Lord, my expectation for the future, my hope is set on you. And Lord, I'm entrusting the things that I can't control anyway to you in prayer. You know, in that way, prayer is just the humblest form of submission to God. Lord, this is going on. We can't control it, but you can. Here it is before you. Would you intervene as you see fit? But living under a death sentence for the Christian is a positive thing because it brings us back to first things, to primary functions, to the bases that we can found a life upon. Let's pray. Lord, um, in good times it often seems like nothing can go wrong and we skip merrily through life and yet just as suddenly as uh, storms often come in over the plains or the winter weather shifts in from the north, Lord, trouble often finds us when we least expect it. Lord, would you help us remember Paul uh, with that same sense of desperation, uh, the end of life as he knew it, and that great response of trusting you again and fixing his hope firmly on you, Lord, and entrusting himself personally and through the prayers of others to your good care again and like hezekiah lord or like paul help us have the value of that sense of living under a sentence of death that it brings us to the end of ourselves and help us to focus and cast ourselves lord with with reckless abandon on the god who loves us and has saved us through the life and the death of his own son and is prepared to welcome us to into his heavenly kingdom lord with with abandon, we commit ourselves to you here again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.